Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about the 2011 movie, Bridesmaids, starring Kristen Wiig, Maya Rudolph, Rose Byrne. Um, I'm Mario Sakura, and as always, I'm here with the TJs, TJ Daw and TJ Ingracia. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Things are all right in TJ land. All right. Very good. Great to hear it. So, uh, let's see. This was TJ Daw's pick for a movie. Uh, as we've been doing, we started off this season with uh, some movies about the uh, five movies on Marvel Cinematic Universe, and now we're moving into kind of some movies that we liked and felt like talking about. And T.J. Daw picked this movie. T.J., why don't you tell us why you picked this movie and give us a uh, summary of the film? Yeah, happy to. So, first and foremost, I just loved it. I saw this movie when it came out in the theaters, hadn't seen it since. And I have many, many good memories of it being not only a good movie, but a surprisingly successful movie. And this came out in 2011. So the Marvel Cinematic Universe was in full swing as well as all of the different franchises. And this came out in the summer and it did incredibly well for a movie period, much less a movie that had to compete with a bunch of special effects laden blockbusters. And this is the opposite of that. And I think it's Judd Apatow's highest grossing movie so far. He was the producer of it. So it was a very successful movie. Yeah. And it has lasted very well in public esteem. It's one of those movies that I hear referenced always positively. And we'll get to this when we talk about the movie in full, but the scene when Melissa McCarthy's character confronts Kristen Wiig's character, which I consider the climax in the heart of the movie, is something that stood out to me from the first time I saw it. So it was a pleasure to watch that again. I'm looking forward to discussing that. So, summary of the movie. Bridesmaids, as you mentioned, came out in 2011. It's directed by Paul Feig. It was co-written by Kristen Wiig, who plays the lead, and Annie Mumolo. The two of them later co-wrote and co-starred in an excellent movie unrelated to this one called Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, which I highly recommend. So, this is about Kristen Wiig's character, Annie, who lives in Milwaukee, and her life is a bit of a shambles. At the beginning of the movie, we find out her bakery had gone bankrupt, Her boyfriend had left her when it went bankrupt. She works a shitty job, which she only has because her boss is doing a favor to her mother. She lives with shitty roommates. She's fuck buddies with a handsome douchebag played by John Hamm, who treats her like shit. And the one bright spot in her life is her friendship with Lillian, played by Maya Rudolph, who's been her best friend since childhood. Maya soon gets engaged and asks Annie to be her maid of honor. At her engagement party, Annie is introduced to the other bridesmaids, notably Megan, played by Melissa McCarthy, and Helen, played by Rose Byrne. Annie soon gets in a passive-aggressive tug-of-war with Helen over who's Lillian's best friend. With Helen seemingly connected to everyone, wealthy beyond belief, always impeccably done up, and always sweet, nice, and friendly and loving. And soon various pre-wedding events for the bridesmaids go off the rails, one after the other, and always because of Annie. At some point, she gets stopped while driving by a friendly cop, Officer Rhodes, played by Chris O'Dowd, who it comes out was a customer at her old bakery. They run into each other on another occasion and wind up going to a bar and then wind up going back to his place and having sex. And in the morning, he has laid out a full spread of baking ingredients, bowls and utensils to encourage her to bake again, which she rejects, 
walks out, and then we find out later she's not returning any of his calls. Things come to a head with Annie at Lillian's impossibly lavish bridal shower. Annie makes a big scene criticizing Lillian for going along with such an over-the-top affair, and then storms out as Lillian rescinds her invitation to her wedding. Annie then gets evicted by her roommates. She gets fired from her job. She moves in with her mother, played by Jill Kleber, and sinks into depression until Megan comes to visit her and confronts her about her inaction, encouraging her to stand up for herself and to fight for her shitty life. This intervention works. Annie starts to pull her life back together. She bakes a cake for Officer Rhodes as an apology, which he ignores. And soon Helen shows up asking for help as Lillian is nowhere to be found on her own wedding day. They find Lillian in her apartment, Annie goes in on her own and gives Lillian the support she needs to see her wedding through, which Annie comes to as her maid of honor, after which Officer Rhodes is waiting for her outside the wedding, having accepted her apology for shutting him out. They kiss, and then she rides off with him into the night in his cop car. Excellent. Thank you. Um, uh, TJ Doyle, you already uh, said you picked this movie because you really enjoyed it. Uh, TJ and Gracio, uh, what was your reaction to this movie? I thought it was great. I mean, I'd never seen it before, so I was curious to, you know, I've always heard about it. It's just, it's one of those movies that's on my list that I hear people talking about, but I just never got around to. We'll probably get more into this as we talk about some Enneagram themes, but, and I've been, I've been trying to think about why I have felt this way about films and TV shows, films and TV shows that have cringy kinds of scenes, like the scene where Annie and Helen are one-upping each other doing the speeches at the engagement party. That scene might only be, I don't know, eight minutes long or something, but it probably took me about 30 minutes to get through it because (laughs) I have to pause it to like will myself through it. This is not real. These are actors. The situation is not happening. There's probably some sort of uh, one-ish something going on in the background of my lizard brain that that makes me feel so embarrassed for these people that I, it's hard for me to get through it. Um, but still it was, it was a great movie. And um, I love Kristen Wiig. I think she's one of the all time greats on Saturday night live. It's hard for me to see Melissa McCarthy and not picture her Sean Spicer from the last few years of Saturday night live. Uh, but overall it's a great cast, great film. Yeah. I enjoyed the movie as well. And um, it was certainly, uh, quite a few of those cringe-worthy uh, moments that you're talking about. Some over-the-top, well, I wouldn't say over-the-top, but I, I guess uh, some pretty uh, cutting-edge uh, sort of humor. Uh, clearly, this was a Judd Apatow movie, right? I mean, Kristen Wiig and uh, Mumolo wrote the script. Uh, Paul Feig directed it. But this just felt like a Judd Apatow movie. This felt like a knocked up or a, you know, super bad or, or something like that. So it had his fingerprints all over it, we'll say. Although it wasn't, you know, uh, he, sir, he, you know, he was the godfather of this movie, you could tell, I think, rather than, you know, uh, being the actual writer or anything like that or director. Um, so, so there was that part of it. Funny movie. Uh, it felt to me at times that there were, you know, it was kind of, uh, um, there was a little bit of uh, downtime between gags, right? That, you know, there were these set pieces that were often hilarious, right? The wedding dress scene was hilarious. Uh, the, um, the toast scene that you just mentioned, TJ, I thought was hilarious despite being cringeworthy. Um, a lot of other things. To me, this, it was interesting to me, and I'm trying to sort through some of my reactions, right? Because it was a very funny movie. It was a very thoughtful movie. It was a very heartfelt movie in a lot of ways. I guess the thing I walked away from was 
was this was it an aberration in the sense of it was a female driven movie that was not specifically a rom-com right that showed that women could be funny which was kind of a topic of conversation at the time due to a Christopher Hitchens article in Vanity Fair where he said women were not funny but it didn't seem to open doors for other movies like it am I missing anything there that's a pattern that's been observed before. So my main career is in theater. And there's been a few different seemingly door-opening shows by, about, and for women like this, where you would expect that artistic directors and producers all over the place would be, what, 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 what? There's an audience out there looking for stuff about women. Let's fund more. And then it just doesn't happen. So I'm just left to conclude that the sexism, and by that I mean misogyny, inherent in the entertainment industry is so entrenched that it takes more than just one or two or a dozen massive successes to dislodge it even a little bit. Yeah. And, and, and let's hope that it does because there were some massive talents in this movie, right? Kristen Wiig for sure. Uh, but this was kind of the introduction in a significant way of both Melissa McCarthy, who, you know, in some ways steals this movie, I think. And uh, got an Oscar nomination for it, by the way. Oh, did she? Okay. All right. Yeah. And I'm, went on to play lead roles in movie after movie after movie. Exactly right. Dude, I think, to her performance in this, because I always think of her as Suki from the Gilmore Girls, right? The chef. Um, you know, for me, that's, you know, where I first noticed her. And then she showed that she had far more range, certainly, than she showed in that character uh, in this movie. And Rebel Wilson, too, who I thought was absolutely hilarious in this and uh, has gone on to do some big things. But to to the point, it really hasn't seemed to open the doors that one would have hoped. And so um, hopefully there's still an opportunity for this. I'll also say that I just last week uh, was in Los Angeles and did a Paramount Studios tour. And much of this movie was ba was filmed on that lot, right? It takes place in, theoretically, in Milwaukee and Chicago. But while we were on the tour, the uh, tour guide said, oh, that building over there is where the cupcake place was in Bridesmaids. So as I was watching this movie, all I could see were all the sets, uh, the scenes that were done on that set, including the chocolate fountain being the same. Uh, no, wait, I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, actually, it was. This part was filmed on the Warner Brothers lot, uh, the, the, the same fountain as the Friends fountain. Um, they use that little park there for a number of things. They just turn the camera for different angles and so forth. So anyway, I was a little pulled out of the movie because I had just done the Paramount and Warner Brothers tours uh, the, the previous week, uh, but really, really enjoyed the movie. Okay. All right. So, so let's jump right in here. So Enneagram types in the movie. Let's start with the star, Kristen Wiig, who plays Annie. Uh, thoughts on her Enneagram type? I see her as a pretty solid six. A lot of six things going, and I think the overall themes of the movie are very six-ish. So just to flesh that out a little bit, hanging out, there's an early scene of her and Lillian in the coffee shop. They're talking about their lives. Lillian's expressing her anxiety about her relationship. They share a sense of humor. They're building on each other's jokes. That's a big six thing is let us bond by hanging out. And when I'm hanging out with you, my anxiety lessens because I know I must not be that bad at least one other person thinks I'm okay. She's playful. When she gets stopped by Officer Rhodes, she tries to charm him by Charleston dancing. 
on the road line. And then later when she runs into him at a gas station late at night, they end up sitting on the hood of his car and they talk about planning a wedding. And he says he thinks it should be fun, like a carnival. And then she jams with him. Like they're, they're able to build on each other's jokes. That's the foundation of what ends up being their romance. She's reactive. So when something presses her button, she can't not respond to it, whether it's alone in her car, mocking Helen on the drive home after she first meets her or in the tennis game when she's aiming at Helen and hitting her on the chest a number of times and the confrontation of the bridal shower where she freaks out and the insult contest with the teenage customer at the jewelry store. So that's another sixth thing as well that kind of dovetails into that, unable to leave well enough alone. So when, when I get caught up in something, I have to, uh, I can't shut my mouth up, even though I'm making it worse. And even though I know I'm making it worse, I just can't. And after the fact, I will beat the shit out of myself for having done that. And self-sabotage. That's a, every type engages in self-sabotage in some particular way. Sixes have their own version and quite often it's self-aware and it very much is in her case. So after she leaves Rhodes, because of his loving encouragement that she should bake again, she calls Lillian, she leaves a voicemail where she says, I slept with a cop that pulled me over and woke up and he was really sweet and nice and cute. So naturally I ran out as fast as I could. What's wrong with me? That is something, you know, a sentiment that I've heard from a number of sixes. Uh, the devil you know is another big six thing. The opening scene of the movie is her in bed with her fuck buddy, Ted, who treats her like shit. And she would like to have a boyfriend and she obviously would like to have a good one, but she would like to have maybe him because even though he treats her terrible, I know who he is and he's good looking and he's wealthy and I can lower my standards for that. And then finally, she is hopeful and encouraging when Lillian is anxious. So a big sixth thing that I've noticed and read about is when I'm on my own, I'm paralyzed by anxiety. But when I'm there for a friend who's having a hard time, all the confidence and hope and optimism that were not available to me seemingly on my own are right there. And it's not just something I'm saying, it's something I feel in my blood and in my bones, and it's real, and that comes across. TJ and Gracia, any reaction to that? Yeah, okay. So I saw it quite a bit differently. So, <laughs> but it's this is what's so interesting about the Enneagram is the external traits can look so similar it's a fictional film, and so different types could be reacting exactly the same way. We don't necessarily have access to her internal drives and childhood dramas and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, it could just be a uh, – it's, it's a bit of a Rorschach test. Okay, so I'm going to argue for Annie as more of a two-ish character, although I don't disagree with anything that you said. I, you know, I can see all those things being true. It feels to me like she's very much striving to feel connected uh, she wants to be connected with Ted, even though he treats her like shit, as you said. You know, she wants to be connected with Lily, her best friend. When Helen moves in on the friendship and Lily is, you know, now has two friends, this is very threatening for Annie because she wants to be the best friend. She wants to be the maid of honor. She wants to feel that her connection with Lily is secure and she's feeling insecure about that. Just to jump in, Lillian is the character. Oh, Lillian. Okay. Yeah, when she's, okay, so at, the, at that toast, the uh, cringeworthy toast that I was talking about, she gets into the one-upsmanship with Helen, and after she gives her sad little, very basic initial toast, Helen comes back up and just gushes and talks about how Lillian is now her best friend. 
Annie goes back up and she says something like, uh, I just want to thank you for carefully selecting me as your maid of honor. I know you had some other choices and very passive aggressively is trying to insert herself as the one who really has the true connection with Lillian. When she's hanging out with Officer Rhodes, at one point he says to her something about, uh, you know, there's just something about you that really just sticks. Like he, she can tell that he's starting to be into her. He says that line to her and then immediately jump cut to them jumping onto the bed back at her place. This attention, this connection that he seems to have with her really gets her going, obviously. The personalized gift that she gives Lillian at the shower, all of their favorite memories from Milwaukee, and then is immediately upstaged by Helen. Uh, Helen's going to take Lillian to Paris for uh, her dress fitting, which Lillian has always wanted to go to Paris. And this was one of the biggest two things that I saw. And of course, this is a stereotype and isn't true for everyone. But I, I have personally seen in some twos that if they want to be connected with you and you don't reciprocate that connection with them or you don't show appreciation for the appreciation that they show for you, the claws can really come out and they go from loving to attacking and you better you know, watch your eyes. You're going to get your eyeballs clawed out pretty quick. <laughs> the scene back at her mother's house when she was watching Castaway and crying at the scene where Tom Hanks loses Wilson. You know, obviously there's some direct parallels between Wilson becomes Tom Hanks' best friend in that film. He's lost his best friend. She's lost her best friend and she's freaking out over it. And then obviously just her wanting to be helpful. Many times throughout the film, she is self-sacrificing, giving up on her needs or what's important to her or whatever. And she's trying to defer to other people. So that's my argument for right. Annie is more of a Jewish character. Yeah. Um, cast away uh, forest gump on an Island. I thought was one of the right. best lines in the movie. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> so, um, so my take on the character was navigating six. Okay. And uh, one of the common mistypings for the navigating six is type two. Um, and again, you know, for me, the theme that came out for Annie was about anxiety and a need for security, right? And finding that through where she fits into the group, right? Particularly the friends, okay? So um, it was all about who am I and where do I fit? And what is my role and what is my status? This movie was very much about status, Right. There was this whole thing of, you know, this whole theme of Annie not having any money and Helen having lots and lots of money and wanting to spend it. And this is something that anybody, you know, if you've ever talked to a woman who's been in multiple weddings, they will tell you it's one of the things they really cringe over is the cost of being a bridesmaid. Right. And how much pressure it is to, um, you know, spend a lot of money on the dress that you're never, ever going to wear again, no matter how often the bride says, oh, no, you can wear this multiple times and multiple occasions. They never do. Right. And um, so so for me, there was a lot of uh, there was suspicion. There was anxiety. You know, there was the fear of flying, which can affect anybody. But uh, one of the themes, the uh, uh, TJ Daw, you mentioned the scene with. Uh, the girl in the jewelry shop, who, by the way, was Peter Frampton's daughter. Okay, just you know, an odd, you know, sort of uh, uh, tidbit there. Um, but there was also the other one with the Asian couple, 
And she starts talking about, oh, it's not going to last. You know, he's going, you can never trust anybody. You never really know who anybody is. In fact, he may not even be Asian, she says to him, right? <laughs> so there was this suspiciousness. Um, so for me, there was a lot of theme of sickness, okay? Uh, and, you know, again, those two-ish things of helping, uh, which is something we see in sixes quite often, right? And so it's, uh, you know, and the connection thing, again, something very common in sixes as well, but it's connection in terms of security and identity, um, I think, um, you, you know, more so than the two. Um, so that was my take on it. Uh, you know, again, they are fictional characters, so who knows for sure. I'm going to posit, and I'm curious to your reactions on this, uh, I think Helen was an excellent example of a two. And, you know, for me, she was a classic navigating two and would be easy to misidentify as a three, okay? Uh, because there were a whole lot of three-ish elements there. There was a lot of status stuff. But something that we see in navigating twos is this sort of uh, connection to people who are important, connection to people who have status because that gives me status as well. Right, so it's all about identity and role. They don't necessarily want to be king; they want to be kingmaker. Exactly right. Exactly right. And then frustrated because they've lost their own identity, and that's the big breakdown that Helen has later in the movie, where she's saying, "You know, I do all these things, and yet I never feel satisfied. Nobody loves me. I don't have any women friends. My husband doesn't talk to me, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. So there's this sorrow. And the other thing we saw in her that is very indicative of twos is flattery. I mean, she was flattering people throughout the movie. And even when it was kind of a backhanded thing to establish dominance, right, uh, that she would flatter first and then kind of put herself above. Um, there was this sort of false emotionality to her very often, I thought. There was some real emotionality for sure. But, you know, when I was watching the uh, toast scene, I, I, I turned to my wife. We were watching it together, and I said, I could not get far enough away from that woman, right? <laughs> Just with the, you know, the, the whole woohoo and, you know, the nickname for Dougie or, you know, that sort of thing, right? Um, so I, I saw that character as a very clear two. Thoughts on that, guys? I saw her as a transmitting two, but navigating makes sense. Like she dressed like a transmitter. She was always very done up. You know, wearing long, flowy dresses, her makeup and hair were perfect. Not that a uh, navigating to wouldn't, was particularly a woman who was absorbed that this is my role in this world to be beautiful and sweet, wouldn't necessarily do that too. But navigating does make sense as you describe it. Uh, a few other two-ish things that I put in my notes is she's always sweet, nice, smiling, laughing, loving, affectionate. But there's a calculating eye behind it all, which is seen in glimpses. And in the tennis match scene, there's just a close, and Rose Byrne is such a good actor, you know, and then because it's film, these things can be done with just a microsecond facial expression. There's a shot of her face taking in Annie's pain when a tennis ball baps her in the chest. And in the, in the scene, like the, the dueling bride's toasts or bridesmaid toasts, you can see that calculating mind at work of like, no, no, you're not going to win this. I am. Like, it's, it's not good enough to let somebody else have the final say. And then she's undermining Annie's ideas. You know, she kind of kiboshes Annie's idea for a Paris-themed bridal shower and then steals it. And then has this big demonstrative display of, of 
just the extreme nature of how much I love you. I'm going to take you to Paris, the place you've always wanted to go. I'm going to, you know, we will do a fitting with your dress designer, who of course I know and set you up with. So nobody loves you as much as I do. And then at the very end, uh, the fact that Wilson Phillips have showed up, uh, <laughs> there's that nice exchange between Annie and Helen. It's like, really? She says, just one last one. Oh, fine. Okay. And then a nice two-ish moment at the end too, is that Officer Rhodes shows up and it's clearly Helen that did it. So the two of them really do make peace. And that she's at that point showing some pretty healthy tunis of like, I know that you have an attraction. I know that there's bad history here. I also believe that it can work between the two of you. And if I just put you together and get out of the way, maybe it'll happen. And it does. I'll just um, I'll make a comment about the navigating versus transmitting thing. Even though she was often, you know, dressed immaculately, there didn't strike me as a blatant sort of sexuality to her and seductiveness, which is something I also, I often associate with transmitting twos of both genders or both sexes. Um, one of my favorite examples of that is I think Tony Monero from Saturday Night Fever, who I think is a very transmitting two sort of character. Right. And, um, you know, again, there's just this sort of blatant sexuality. Uh, another example would be the classic fatal attraction, uh, Glenn Close character. Right. Uh, there's a seductiveness and an intensity that didn't seem to be there with uh, Helen and my. In yeah. My view. Penny Lane from Almost Famous is a great yes. uh, transmitting too as well. Yes. Yes. Something else I liked about this is that it's got a two antagonist who isn't a psychopath. Yes. You know, yeah. Fatal Attraction is mentioned quite often as, an, yes. as a movie to watch if you want to see an Enneagram 2 in action or Misery. <laughs> yeah. So these, these are both examples that would make people, twos studying the Enneagram, particularly women who are identifying right. as twos, just recoil and say, yes. I don't want that to be my type. Right. Helen's still the antagonist, but she's not a monster in any way whatsoever. Right. And we do see that nice moment of vulnerability that you described yes. where she admits that she's actually really lonely. Yes. She's a sympathetic of, character for sure. Yeah. Her stepkids hate her <laughs> and are really rude to her face, which she laughs off and pretends it's right. just all in fun, but it's right. not. Right. And she does want love and connection and you get the sense she doesn't really have it. Yeah. Good. Uh, TG and Grazi, any uh, thoughts on the Helen character? Nothing more to add. Yeah. I concur with all that. Yeah. I, I was, um, saw some three-ish stuff as you said, but I think that navigating to, uh, explains a lot of that. All right, good. Uh, so speaking of threes, <laughs> Ted, any argument about the threeness of John Hamm's Ted? This might have been the first major film role that he did after Mad Men, or like, you know, after Mad Men became the splash. So it's impossible, certainly when the movie came out, to see his character and not think of Don Draper. And I don't think that John Hamm is a three in real life. I think I he's a either. nine. Uh, but he's able to play a three really well, and he has no qualms about looking ridiculous, which he just had the greatest fun doing. It's like, here's a cartoonishly hateable three. Yes, it, 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 it's the Glenn Close equivalent, um, you know, the fatal attraction equivalent almost of the three, right? Yeah, a, a, a completely unredeemable character uh but hits every three note right uh striving to feel outstanding it's you know self-absorbed i would say probably a transmitting three um you know um tj you've used the term fuck buddy uh a couple of times throughout the episode and this is how he addresses her when he picks her up after her share her car got rear-ended right he drives up while the, while the police uh officer oh shoot what was his uh roads officer roads right uh while he is there and it, you know and hollers out the window hey 
hey, fuck, buddy, you know, uh, how you doing, right? <laughs> uh, a, a completely unlikable guy uh, and a very clear Enneagram 3. Uh, my apologies to all our three friends listening out here. He is not representative of the species. So uh, any other thoughts on John Hamm's uh, character in the type 3 here? I don't know that it's necessarily a three thing, but just one line that really stood out to me is in that opening scene in the morning when she's done herself up to try and make herself look beautiful and they're bantering. And at one point he just says, oh, I just really want you to leave, but I don't want to seem like a dick. <laughs> I was like, that is a good compact bit of screenwriting. Yeah. Of yes. like Everything you need to know about that character is in that line. Right. And a perfect encapsulation of where Annie is. There's a screenwriting precept that was made famous by a screenwriter called Blake Snyder called Six Things That Need Fixing. And the number doesn't need to be six. It can be any number of things. But early on in the movie, you want to establish that the protagonist has a number of things that could be going better in their life. And Annie's a pretty good example of that. She's got a lot of things in her life that right from the opening scene, we can see, yeah, yeah, things aren't going so great for Annie. And let's hope that things get better for her by the end. And and not only were things not going well for her, but she was a public failure. And in that opening scene, she does leave John Hamm's home and she's trying to get out and she, you know, the gate is locked and she doesn't want to go back to ask him to undo the lock. So she starts to climb over it and then the gate starts opening it with her sitting on top and the neighbors are all watching, right? So it's just this public humiliation that this poor woman has been experiencing. And we see that as a theme that goes throughout the movie, right? Most of her humiliations are very public. And she doesn't say, okay, I'm done with this guy. I don't need that. Right. She goes back to him. Right. More than once. If you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds, or our certification programs, visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one consulting on creative projects of all kinds, as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com slash typecast. And... If you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjangracia.com. Let's see, who else do we have here? Um, I'm saving my favorite for last. Let's talk about Officer Rhodes, uh, played by Chris O'Dowd, who, uh, number one, appears to be the only state trooper in all the state of Wisconsin for some reason, because he seems to be uh, everywhere. And I think at one point he goes to Chicago. I, I, the, the geography sort of lost me there. But uh, anyway, all those uh, scenes with the, the car accident were filmed in Oxnard, California. Um, and, you know. So anyway, and, and not only is he the only state trooper, but also has a very clear Irish accent, uh, which... <laughs> It was quite interesting. Um, So uh, I thought a great character, a very, you know, um, uh, I I was watching Judd Apatow discussing this character, and he said that he was not only funny, uh, but also sexy, which is something that you usually do not see in Judd Apatow heroes, right? Um, So uh, thoughts on Officer Rhodes' Enneagram type? I'm going to argue he's type one. Uh, of course, maybe you I, are. <laughs> yeah, of course I am. Yeah. Okay. 
right, I've got all evidence. Right. All right, go ahead. <laughs> okay, so uh, the scene, I guess it's the second time that they meet up at the convenience store where they bump into each other, then they're, they're sitting on the car talking. She picks the ugly carrot out of the uh, bag, and he wants her to eat it. She refuses and throws it away. He jumps off the car, picks up the carrot, and says, I'm anal about that kind of thing. He doesn't like the littering on the ground. Um, there's this recurring theme of her needing to have her taillights fixed throughout the film, which is one of the things that originally you know, led them to meet up. He pulled her over for having her taillights being out. And after they hook up, but then she sort of rejects him, she won't return his calls. He leaves her a voicemail, and the last thing he says is, I won't be bothering you ever again. There's sort of a long, awkward pause, and then he says, but get those taillights fixed. <laughs> after she gets into the accident and he comes uh, right before John Hamm picks her up, he has this little monologue with her, and he's expressing his frustration mostly about her rejecting him, but it's, so it's sort of intertwined with the accident. He says, do you have any idea how frustrating it is to see you night by night drive past me with your fucking taillight still broken? Do you have any idea how crazy that makes me? It's a simple solution. Your problem, Annie, is that you don't understand you can hurt people, awkward pause, with those broken taillights. Don't you see how irresponsible it is? Uh, later, when he's talking about her dropping him, he says, it's really unfair that you did that. And then at the very end, when they ride off after the wedding, she wants to sit in the front seat of the cop car, but he won't let her because it's against regulations. So he's very by the book. Uh, he wants things done the right way. There's, there's a right way to treat people. Things need to be done the fair way. As a one, I can empathize. If he's not a one, he's got a whole lot of one-ish uh, things going on that I can relate to. All right. Great. TJ Dahl. I saw him as a two. Uh, he's really friendly. He encourages Annie to get back into baking multiple times and won't take no for an answer, which is a big part of what gets him into trouble. I know what's good for you. I know what's good for you better than you do. I know you better than you know yourself. And even before that happens, after they've had sex, they wake up the next morning, she's kind of apologetic that she dared stay the night because she's used to being treated like that, whereas he's happy that she's there and he's made her a cappuccino. And she's, you know, they emphasize that you made a cappuccino. Like that's, that's more involved than just making a cup of coffee. And before that, he's just sitting at the foot of the bed, looking at her lovingly of like, here's the object of my affection. We just made sweet passionate love last night. Maybe this is going to turn into something serious. What could be better than this? Uh, he doesn't take himself very seriously. There's a number of exchanges that the two of them have when they're bantering where he's able to laugh at himself, where he's able to, he makes himself the butt of the joke more than once. And he holds a grudge big time, which I see very much as a two going to eight thing of like, after these repeated entreaties, please reciprocate my love, please call me back. And she just won't. Then my heart goes from loving and warm and acceptance to we are done. You are dead to me. I will not even eat the cake that you leave at my doorstep. I will leave that for the raccoons. And that exact passage of dialogue that you mentioned, TJ and Gracia, another part of it was, you know, like his anger about the broken taillights is very much, I saw, anger about his heart being broken. I, I agree for sure. And he goes on, he says, you know, your message was received. And for the record, you flirted with me. You made me feel like you really liked me, which was really unfair. And then you come home with me and we did stuff, lots of fun stuff, and you were gone. So basically saying, you broke my heart. You rejected my love. And that felt really shitty. So fuck you forever. So that's the, uh, the, the iron fist inside the velvet glove of the two. 
Well, nice try, boys. Um, let's see. So uh, <laughs> both good arguments. Uh, I am going to offer a alternative argument. I see this character as a nine. Okay, and let me explain why. Um, number one, there was a very sort of easygoing, now, I'll say an imperfectly scripted nine. And a nine playing a police officer whose job it is to enforce rules, right? Which explains some of the one-ish, you know, sort of behavior, I think. Uh, for me, the affect was all nine, right? It was this easygoing, self-deprecating quality, right? Which is a classic thing of nines. Even the joking about, you know, when she says to him, uh, you know, can you be a police officer without being a citizen of the U.S.? And he says, well, no, you can't, but they made an exception for me because I'm so strong and brave and, you know, all these things. And so there's this clear self-deprecation thing, this ability to poke fun at himself, um, which is not a two thing in my experience, right? Very much a nine thing. Okay, um, and particularly, you know, for me again, it felt like a navigating nine. Most of the characters in this movie were felt navigating to me, right? And uh, so, and and again, a very different character from the Helen character, right? Affectively and intentionally, and so forth. You know, he had a, a sort of lightness and warmth and likability to him that um, again felt very nine and I think nine-ish characters are very common as the heroes in Judd Apatow flicks right um, you know because they're just these easygoing you know unambitious salt-of-the-earth kind of guys that you just can't help but like at least he wasn't smoking pot throughout the whole film, <laughs> as would be common in Judd Apatow films. Exactly right. <laughs> you know? So, uh, so for me, um, the, the character struck me as you know, uh, kind of a navigating nine, uh, if imperfectly addressed. And the thing, you know, about the breaking my heart, it, it felt to me more like being unappreciated and devalued. Right uh, of you know you you're not paying attention to me you're not responding to me here I put myself out and you're deeming me you know you're treating me as if I'm not worthy in some sense right again we don't really know the motivation and it could have gone either way oh and speaking of the littering thing that you mentioned T J this is actually very consistent with the navigating bias. I, for example, become infuriated when I see people litter. It's a, a violation of the social contract. It's not so much about following rules as it just as about how society functions and works. Everybody has to follow the social norms um, for people who are navigators. I remember being a part of uh, a panel of socials of all different Enneagram types during a Riso Hudson training way back in the day. And as the panel was concluding, one of the panelists said, completely out of nowhere and I really hate when people litter everyone on the panel even though we were all heading back to our seats in the audience kind of got re rejuvenated and we went back to the dais and we did five minutes on the evils of littering again the only thing that we shared was that we you know because we were all different uh, Enneagram types but we were all what Rizzo and Hudson would call social subtypes, which we call navigating. So uh, for whatever that's worth, uh, I, I think that um, litter, that response to littering that we saw in the character uh, may have been more to do with the navigating instinctual bias. And uh, it felt kind of like a nine-ish character to me. I would be surprised if Judd Apatow himself wasn't a navigating type. Yeah. Because that's a consistent motif in everything that yes. I've seen. I also believe that he's a six. I've read his first mm -hmm. book of interviews with comedy mm -hmm. figures, Sick in the Head. Yes. 
And there's a lot of sixness that comes across in that. He uses a lot of the same actors from movie to movie, and you get the sense yes. that he's got a crew. And that's yes. always been the way he operates, and that's the way he likes to operate. And his movies are always about the interactions between people. There's no special effects. There's no shootouts. There's no chase scenes. It's about what are the nuances in human relationships. Exactly right. They're always about identity. They're always about, you know, where do I fit? Who's my group? What's my environment? Um, Navigating Six makes huge sense to me. And when you look at who his comedy heroes are, uh, he always talks about Gary Shandling, for example, uh, Albert Brooks, uh, you know, six-ish sort of characters. George Carlin. He just recently directed Uh, a two-part docuseries on on HBO about George Carlin and had previously done one about Gary Shandling. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. So, um, probably a six and a lot of nine ish themes, uh, you know, come through, uh, for me very often in the, in the movies. Let's see, who else do we have here? I'm saving Melissa McCarthy. Uh, so, so hang in there with me. Um, what about rebel Wilson, the roommate? Yeah. Any doubts there? (laughs) Well, go ahead, TJ. (laughs) What would you say she is? Uh, she seemed pretty sevenish to me. I mean, she's a very minor character. We don't get a whole lot from her, but you know, she has the uh, spontaneous tattoo. She, uh, <laughs> bra- you know, wanders into Annie's room and reads her journal. Uh, she doesn't want to work while she's here on her tours visa. She can only tour, she says. Right. So, uh, you know, maybe some very surface level, stereotypical sevenish kind of things. But yeah, hard. hard to, uh, go ahead, T.J. Dahl. Do you, would you suggest otherwise? I, I, yeah, no, I'd agree with that. And I'd also say that I don't know that I've seen her in a movie where she hasn't played a seven. And she's very good. She's very good at playing sevens, and she's very funny and charismatic on screen. Yes. Her dialogue felt, I don't know that any of it was improvised, but I always like, especially in comedy films, when it feels like the dialogue is improvised, even if it wasn't. I think that speaks to, she's really, really good because she makes it feel like she's just improvising, even if it was scripted. Yeah, I, I, from what I read about the movie, uh, most of the scenes were scripted, but they would do the scripted take and then they would do the improvised take or multiple improvised takes and much of the improvised uh, content ended up being used. Um, and one of the things I liked about this movie were some of the kind of um, sort of quick throwaways, right? And I, I think, for example, the roommates, uh, Rebel Wilson and um, the, the Matt Lucas, uh, who played her brother, so they were siblings uh, from the UK, I guess, uh, although I don't know. Yeah, they did make that point because she was there on a tourist visa, so therefore she could only tour. Uh, they, they, uh, just a nice little kind of insert that wasn't critical to the story, but was entertaining, right? Every time they would go to those characters. And uh, just little things like the uh, the, the stepchildren uh, that you guys already talked about, right? Uh, Helen's stepchildren and other things uh, made this movie uh, better than it would have been without them. So, um, okay, Melissa McCarthy, uh, the character of Megan. So thoughts on the Enneagram type there? I don't think it's a perfect picture, but I see her as an eight. Yeah. Yeah. I see her as weirder than eights are generally presented as. So there's all (laughs) kinds of whack job details in her, but she's also really earthy. She's really lusty. And to me, the eightness really comes out. It's one of my favorite scenes with an eight ever is the scene where she confronts Annie. Yes. The pity party scene, yes. Yeah. Where uh, I'm life and I'm going to bite you in the ass uh, sort of thing. And then she literally <laughs> bites her in the ass. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think Melissa McCarthy is probably a seven in real life. 
and does a great job of portraying eights. Uh, one of you mentioned the Sean Spicer impression that she does. I don't know if Spicer is actually an eight or a transmitting six, but she plays him as an eight. And um, so I would agree with that character it was not perfect. It was it was a seven playing an eight, but if you read the dialogues and you watch it and you listen to it and the themes that she's trying to get, it was a weird eight probably a transmitting eight for sure if the uh scene in the credits is to <laughs> where she's making the uh sex tape with um uh the uh, air marshal who uh, is her husband in real life uh, a transmitting eight from my view tj and Grassi, any further thoughts on the uh melissa mccarthy yeah i concur yeah she's very very lusty yeah you made that was a good point T.J. Daw, that she's a little quirkier, maybe a little more off the wall than, than an eight would normally be. Not a, not a perfect depiction, but she certainly seems to uh, enjoy grabbing life by the balls pretty much. Yeah, yeah. And that's a big part of why the performance works so well. Is she has the room to be off the wall. She's not the main character. Right. So we don't need it to be a fully believable, fleshed out, multidimensional character. She can be this kind of almost like a Hanna-Barbera cartoon character just showing up. But then in that one scene, in that confrontation scene, I actually, it actually made me really emotional to see it. Yes. Of just how the toughness of an eight comes across, but as well as the love of an eight. And how, in the, particularly in a healthy eight, that toughness is rooted in love. And when she shows up and Annie's listing all of the shitty things about her life, one of the things she says is that she has no friends. And that's when Megan jumps in. And says, I'm standing here as a friend and you're saying that you have no friends. Even though her affect doesn't betray it at all, you can see that within that statement is the fact that it hurt me that you've been ignoring me. And it hurts me now that I'm offering you friendship and that you describe yourself as having no friends, even to my face. And then when she starts like physically attacking Annie, like not really hard, but still hard enough to get through to her. And then Annie slaps back. She's impressed. She says, good, you're yes. standing up. Yes. I like that about you. And that's how my love manifests for, I want yes. you to be tough. Which is something we discussed in the Thor episode last time, right? This idea of standing up, right? So great point. As well as the story of what a hard time she had in high school. Yes. So that's another side of eights that people don't often see because eights present themselves as so tough that they didn't necessarily just stride through life like Conan the Barbarian smashing down obstacles with their club at every turn. Eights can be bullied. Eights can get their heart broken. And, you know, it's certainly an ad lib, but she describes in high school people throwing firecrackers at her head, literally. And I've known other eights that have described being bullied in some extreme way. And that's part of what makes an eight really toughen up and say, I'm not going to let that happen to me again. And I'm definitely not going to be okay with somebody I love letting that happen to them particularly when it's happening at their own hands. I'll share a quick story here. I don't know if this will make it into the final edit or not. TJ and Grassi, you can decide. I remember very clearly in, uh, it would have been 10th grade, uh, we, in gym class, uh, we were playing indoor hockey. And there was a kid who was a star football player, star lacrosse player for the, the teams. And he hit me late. I was playing defense. The puck came to me. I cleared it out. He was about 10 feet away from me when I cleared it out, barreling at me, and he just kept coming. 
right? And he hit me and sent me flying. I mean, just, I did two backward somersaults on the, on the floor, right? I mean, he hit me that hard. And I got up and everybody was laughing, including the gym teacher, right? Who was also the wrestling coach and a bit of a psychopath. And I clearly remember that moment saying to myself, that will never happen again, right? Um, so I can, I can relate to that story you're talking about there, TJ. Okay. Um, yeah. So for me, that character was a uh, uh, somebody who's a seven playing an eight. Uh, you, you know, a seven in real life, and that leads me to um, you know we talked about uh, introducing, and I just kind of threw this at you guys today, but introducing some categories into the podcast, and this is a naked ripoff of one of my favorite podcasts, The Rewatchables. So, Bill Simmons, if you ever hear this, uh, my uh, my tribute and my apologies, okay? Uh, but a few categories that we're going to introduce, and I one of them is what is the most enneagrammatically conflicted character. And I would nominate this one, right? Because it would be easy to see this as a seven, but also to see as an eight. So I think you can make that argument very validly either way. Uh, thoughts to you guys. Uh, did you see any other characters that were uh, enneagrammatically conflicted in that way? Well, there is the fact that all three of us had different takes on Officer Rhodes. Yes. Uh -huh. But yeah, when you first posed the question... Megan was the character that came to mind, for right. sure. I think there's also a fair bit of five weirdness in her. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Just kind of lives in her own world, doesn't really have a sense of like that my standards aren't shared by everybody else. The character reminded me a lot of Zach Galifianakis in The Hangover, right? Which was probably about the same time, maybe a few years earlier. I don't quite remember. Uh, this kind of quirky, weird, in their own sort of world character who over time displays a lot of heart, right? That character was not eight-ish by any stretch in The Hangover, but I couldn't help thinking of that character as I was watching this movie. So the five is an interesting observation there. Anything else on uh, that topic? What was, okay, so what was the most enneagram, enneagrammatically consistent character from your perspective? Well, I thought Annie, but now I have to rethink all of my life choices. <laughs> I nominate Tit, right? I, I don't think there was anything that was uh, non-three-ish about Ted. Uh, and yeah, he, even, agreed. he even rated her as his number three. Right. You won't be my number three anymore. It's <laughs> okay. his final line. All right. Okay. Uh, let's see. Um, any thoughts on the most enneagrammatic scene? Any scene that portrayed an enneagram type uh, very clearly? I think we've touched on this a little bit already. Yeah, again, I would say the Megan confronting Annie scene of like, that is a really good example of an eight as a supporting character. Eights are generally the protagonist or the antagonist or both. If you have an eight as a supporting character, then what's their role in the story? Quite often this. Yes. To show up with that forcefulness right when it's needed and to give the protagonist the shot in the arm of strength and courage that they need. So our final question slash category, uh, would this movie be better or worse if the lead character was an eight, a four, or a one? Okay. And so if we take the Kristen Wiig character of Annie and that character had been, we'll start with type eight. And the reason we picked eight, four, and one, because that is our Enneagram types and we don't have time to talk about all nine of them, but I do not think this movie would have worked at all if she was an eight, right? I mean, just because... 
it was all about her vulnerabilities. It was all about her feeling overwhelmed by life, and that just would not have played well with an eightish protagonist. So I rule out, I think this movie would have been much worse and probably incoherent if the lead <laughs> character was an eight, okay? Um, how about if the character was a type one, TJ? Uh, probably worse. I mean, I think if she was a type one, she'd probably be too focused on the details of the wedding, making everything perfect versus, um, you know, it was interesting thinking about people who would be planning a wedding and the different motivations, you know, they might want the wedding to be perfect. A one would want it to be perfect because it's perfect in and of itself. And even if everybody else hates it, I did it the right way. This is the way it should be. You guys can deal with it. You know, the navigating two of Helen wants it to be perfect because she wants to be connected with Lillian, but also some of the three-ish stuff I saw in her, you know, a three would want it to be perfect so that everyone else will think it's perfect. That's the perfection that's important. Little digression there. But so, no, I don't think, uh, I think Kristen Wiig was perfect just the way she was. Yeah. And how about with a type four, TJ Daw? Again, I don't think it would work. I can, I believe, as I said, that a lot of the comedy came from Annie not being able to leave well enough alone. Not that fours are wiser in terms of that. I just think under stress, fours tend to withdraw more rather than engage and pick more. So I can imagine a four in this character's situation doing a lot more retreating and just being sad about how, you know, chalk up another item on the list of the way my life sucks. Yeah. And that's just, that's terrible. As well as the fact that I can picture a four in the situation having to deal with a lot of disdain for conventional wedding traditions and having to either voice that or disguise that as the maid of honor. And that being what the conflict ended up being about is like, you don't want to do a normal, boring, everybody does yes. that. Oh yes. God, it's been done to death. So different story, different conflict, different movie. I think you could have made a different movie with a four in the lead. Uh, it would not have been a comedy, right? It would have been something you know, very differently. Uh, but I think you could have made a movie with um, a different movie with this. It always makes me think of, you know, I remember reading about Pretty Woman when it first came out. When Julia Roberts first signed on to that, uh, it was supposed to be a kind of tragic, dark uh, movie, right? And the original script she read when she signed on was, I, I think the, um, you know, that character died of an overdose at the end or something, right? And by the time, you know, Gary Marshall came on as director and, you know, Richard Gere and all these other sort of things, it turned into a very, very different movie and, of course, made Julia Roberts' career. Now, and it would be interesting to see what would have happened to Julia Roberts' career if, that original movie had been made right but it also it, but that's what came to mind as i was thinking about this movie with a four character it would have been dark and you know uh, and andy would have committed suicide at the end <laughs> well what you described is not that far away from what julia roberts character went through in steel magnolias which preceded uh, pretty woman by a year oh really? she doesn't okay. die by suicide she dies by cancer mm. but it's a it's a tragic end to her character arc and the movie did very well Mm -hmm. But she wasn't the standout in it. Right. And that didn't even come close to giving her the career that Pretty Woman did. Right. Right. 
All right, good. All right, well, we'll see how that category goes as we uh, as we go into the future. <laughs> we might end up abandoning that category, but uh, it's an interesting thing to think about, and it talks, too, about the nature of films and how all these different components have to sort of come together. What I also thought was interesting was what seemed to be one of the more compelling characters was a character who was enneagrammatically conflicted, right? We see a lot of movies where the enneagram type is very, very clear, right? It's almost a, a you know a, a case study. For example, the uh, uh, the Mark Zuckerberg character in Social, uh, the Social Network, right? I mean, clear five movie works because it's such a clear five, etc. Other times, characters are more conflicted and they still work even if they're not consistent to how somebody would be in real life. Um, I'm curious what that says about the nature of storytelling, right? And if how sometimes the characters have to disrupt our expectations, right? And so sometimes having these contradictions that we might not see in real life, like, you know, I don't think we would have seen that Megan character in real life, right? But it works in a movie. So I'm very curious about the implications of that as we go forward and continue to look at other movies, right? Does the character work better because it's not clear what the Enneagram type is, or would it be better if it was a clear Enneagram type? And in this case, the character of Megan is played in a very different style from every other character, Mm -hmm. which you would think wouldn't work. If I were involved in this in the planning stages, that would be my guess. And I would have been wrong. She's over the top. She's almost like a sketch character. Uh, Melissa McCarthy trained at the Groundlings Theater in LA, as did Kristen Wiig, which is an improv theater that a lot of SNL alumni have come from, where their specialty, their signature in the world of improv is coming up with a character and then the actors improvising as that character and making discoveries as that character that they never would have made otherwise. Hmm. So that's been the foundation of Melissa McCarthy's film career, really. And, you know, she brought that to this role in a big way. Um, but it's almost like casting a cartoon character with a bunch of right. actual human beings. And yet it totally worked. Right, right. And I would say the same thing about the Galifianakis character in uh, The Hangover, right? Just uh, not a real person, not, you know, somebody that makes sense in reality, but brilliant in, in the movie itself. Um, yeah, when she pooped in that sink, I was just totally moved. <laughs> it's coming out like lava. <laughs> yeah, uh, quite quite a scene, quite a scene. Uh, okay, good. Supposedly Judd Apatow's encouragement to put in that yes, scene as well. Yes, yes, that scene was not in it in the original movie, and Kristen Wiig and the uh, the co-writer resisted. Annie Mumolo. Yes, uh, they resisted uh, putting that in there, but ultimately admitted that it worked and certainly me ah we haven't talked about Maya Rudolph real quick on Maya Rudolph thoughts on her character's any a type six is my guess but mm-hmm. we don't see that much of her yeah but yeah. in that early scene with Annie the two of them are hanging out and seem to have a pretty parallel relationship in that way like they're they're best friends they have been for a long time they really get each other and it's not one of those friendships where I'm the shy one and I'm the outgoing one At least in the scenes where we see them together, they're very equal. They get each other. They have this same way of approaching the world. Right. Okay, guys, uh, any final thoughts on Bridesmaids before we wrap up? 
as always, I've got more to say, uh, but this builds directly on what we were saying. Kristen Wiig and Maya Rudolph were castmates and friends on SNL for a good number of years. And as we mentioned, you know, the cast rehearsed and improvised for two weeks before shooting and then improvised on set as well. And there's an overall theme of bonding in this movie, of friendship. And watching the movie, there was a number of scenes where I just got the sense that these are old and new friends coming together, supporting each other, setting each other up for success, which is what improv is all about. It's not about trying to steal the show. It's about trying to make the scene work and trying to make your partner work. And they've got each other's backs and they're enjoying each other's company. There's even outtakes in the credits of the two leads groping each other while they're lip syncing the Wilson Phillips song. And they're clearly having fun. And that's the sense that you get is that this is a movie that was probably fun to be in at every stage. And all of that speaks to me about healthy type six. I mentioned earlier the hanging out as part of the sixishness, but the sense that we're all in this together, that we're supporting each other, that we bring out the best in each other, that we're all team players. This is an ensemble film, is very six and builds on some of the themes we were talking about from the end of About a Boy in that we're connected to each other and we're stronger when we're there for each other and helping each other, which is a theme that's far more relevant than to just this movie or those two movies. Something we could all learn and all benefit from no matter what type we are. Uh, I'll just say on that note about the the six, um, um, a lot of people refer to the Enneagram type six as the loyalist, right? And um, in my experience, they're no more or less loyal than other people right? But there is this group orientation in particularly the navigating six, right? You don't see it as much in the preserving six or even the transmitting six, but the navigating six is the one who, you know, uh, I feel safe because of my group, right? And so I want to know that there's a consistency in the people around us. I want to know who's getting in to the group because I want to make sure that their motives are pure and that they're going to fit in and they're not going to ruin things and they're not going to threaten the group cohesion, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, I think that's uh, a great point to make, particularly around the navigating six. I'll also say that, you know, there's a lot of talk about phobic versus counterphobic sixes, which is um, something that I have an issue with because I think in my experience, all sixes run the gamut of being phobic in some ways and counterphobic in others, meaning that they react against their fears. And if we think of the scenes, you know, some of the scenes with Annie, particularly the scene with Peter Frampton's daughter in the jewelry store, she's pretty darn aggressive there, right? And, you know, in some other places as well. So um, usually when people are talking about counterphobic sixes, they're unconsciously or unknowingly talking about the transmitting six that is a much more aggressive character, right? Uh, think Mel Gibson and almost anything, right? Uh, is that transmitting six character. Um, but um, again, I just thought there was a good opportunity to make that point regarding this movie here. Okay. So uh, Bridesmaids, I really enjoyed it. Um, it, it's, um, it answers the question, if anybody had one, of can women be funny? They certainly can. And there were, you know, tremendously funny women in here, uh, but also an intelligent, thoughtful movie. And let's hope that there are more that come this way. You know, it hasn't pushed the door wide open for uh, smart, thoughtful women for and about, I'm sorry, movies for and about women. Uh, but let's hope we're moving in that direction. And TJ Daw, thank you for choosing this movie for our topic. All right, guys, uh, thank you, and we'll see you next time. 
Thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media.